Tonight's event is the first program in a four-part series that investigates the multiple facets of the experience of womanhood in living memory and today and probes questions of women's roles in contemporary American society and culture. I invite you to join us for our next event in this series on November 2nd when Columbia University Professor of Law Carol Singer will discuss her newest book about abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century America. Our speakers this evening are the editors of Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America, Kate Harding and Samita Mukopadaye. Our speakers this, oh sorry, Kate Harding is the former assistant director of the Women's Resource Center at Cornell University. She holds an MFA in fiction from the Vermont College of Fine Arts and a BA in English from the University of Toronto. She is currently working on a PhD in creative writing from the Bath Spa University. Ms. Harding is the author of Asking For It, The Alarming Rise of Rape Culture and What We Can Do About It, which was chosen as a finalist for the Minnesota Book Award and as the freshman read for Tulane University's class of 2020. She's also the co-author of the Book of Jezebel and of Lessons from the Phatosphere. In 2007, she founded the popular body image and self-acceptance blog Shapely Prose, and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Los Angeles Times, U.S. News, and World Report, Cosmopolitan, Salon, Jezebel, and Mike, among other publications. Samita Mukobadaye is a writer, editor, speaker, and technologist living in New York City. She holds master's and bachelor's degree in women's studies from San Francisco, San Francisco State University and SUNY Albany, respectively. She is the former editorial director of the Identities Vertical at Mike and former executive editor of the award-winning blog Feministing.com. She is author of Outdated, Why Dating is Ruining Your Life. Her writing, <laughs> her writing has appeared in The Nation, The American Prospect, The Guardian, Alternet, Talking Points Memo, New York Magazine, and Al Jazeera. Our moderator this evening is writer and speaker and activist Jacqueline Friedman, who holds an MFA from Emerson College. Her work has redefined the concept of healthy sexuality and popularized the yes means yes standard of sexual consent that is becoming law on many US college campuses. She has written three books, Yes Means Yes, Visions of Female Sexual Power in a World Without Rape, what You Really, Really Want, The Smart Girl's Shame-Free Guide to Sex and Safety, and the forthcoming Unscrewed, Women, Sex, Power, and How to Stop Letting the System Screw Us All. Friedman hosts Unscrewed, a critically acclaimed podcast exploring the paths to sexual liberation. Please join me in welcoming Kate Harding, Samita Mokobadaye, and Jacqueline Friedman to the Boston Athenaeum. Hello, nasty women. Hello. <laughs> How are you all? Excellent. The first announcement I have tonight is that we have a hashtag, which is Nasty Women Live. So if you're tweeting or posting on Facebook or Instagram, that is the hashtag to use, and folks, folks can find it with all the other tour events. You can uh, take a picture of the beautiful audience. I, I take pictures of all the audiences for my mom. I love it. Aww. <laughs> Smile for Samina's mom. Um, 
All right, ladies. <sighs> okay, I'm just going to dive right in because that's what we do. So the thing that's on my mind a lot right now is obviously Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> um, and, but, but not just Harvey Weinstein, the, the individual person, but sort of like the whole dialogue around Harvey Weinstein and women coming out and telling their stories about being sexually harassed or sexually abused. And there's like so much testimony and churn about it. And, it, and it, on the one hand, it feels like the cycle is speeding up or intensifying, right? You know, there's like Roger Ailes and O'Reilly and Cosby and Gomeshi. And like, I feel like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like nobody even remembers that Al Gore had multiple women come in and accuse him of rape. Like it went yeah. down the memory hole. Um, and I feel like these stories are getting taken more seriously lately. But on the other side, like every time I think that and it gives me hope, I think like we also elected a guy who fits this exact same profile. How are you doing with that cognitive dissonance? And like, what do you think about those two things being true at the same time? Shall we? Go for it. Okay. <laughs> so I, um, I think a lot of things, and I think we were just talking about this, that my first reaction to Harvey Weinstein is just, ugh, <laughs> just, I can't. Um, I think that the part of why right now there is this kind of collective accountability is because of social media. Like, I, I think, I just think there's too much critical mass for people to ignore it and for people to say, oh, I didn't know about it or we didn't know it was happening. And so there's almost this like repetitiveness to the rate at which the um, stories are coming out. These reports are coming out, you know, mm -hmm. um, you have three back-to-back -back reports that come out in the Times, in the New Yorker, and there's huge momentum outside of that. And then you have this like big social media campaign, right? Where everyone's like, oh, this isn't good. Um, so to a certain extent, um, I, I do think it's a reaction to the frustration of Trump being in office. I think people and women in particular felt so disempowered that for um, the Americans that did vote for him, it wasn't a deal breaker that there was a video of him bragging about sexually assaulting a woman. Um, that was not a deal breaker. And I think that that was this kind of wake up call for a lot of women to say, wait, this is absolutely unacceptable, but also ingrained in the very fabric of our society and how we think about women's experience in this, in this country. And, and I think that's what this last week, how many people saw the kind of Me Too campaign online? And yeah. Nearly no, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Literally everybody. Um, just to give you a sense of the pervasiveness of the problem. And I do think that that part of why it's having this moment is just people are like, are enough. Yeah, at the same time, um, as far as the political aspect of it goes, what I find so frustrating are all the people that I'm seeing um, trying to make it a partisan issue where, <sighs> and, and I'm seeing this mostly coming from the right, not the people on the left or above it, because a lot of us, someone from the right will say like, you know, complain that Hillary Clinton took money from Harvey Weinstein. Why isn't she giving it back? Something like this. You know, the left was trying to cover up for Harvey Weinstein. We're all like, look who you put in office. Um, but when we get caught up in that, but Trump is president, but Weinstein is a leftist, like, we're not talking about the fact that, like, yes, this is not a problem that falls along party lines. We know, and feminists have been saying for years, that men on the left also harass and assault and abuse women. Julian um, Assange. Right, <laughs> Julian Assange, exactly. <laughs> um, Al Gore, as you said. Yeah. Um, and so these things, like trying to make it a gotcha one-upsmanship kind of thing is so frustrating when it's like this could be something we come together on. Right. I, I, 
the most popular thing I have ever written in my life was a post about um, Roman Polanski's arrest in 2009. Uh, it was titled, Reminder, Roman Polanski Raped a Child. And one of the reasons it was so popular was because I was a darling of the right wing for like four days there. Because this was one thing that we could come to, you know, because of that impulse of like, ooh, we can nail a, you know, a liberal elite, liberal Hollywood director um, on something like this. And then, of course, you know, people who actually, and I don't want to say that no conservative cares about child rape, certainly some do one would think that child rape is something we can all come together around. Um, but it's amazing how even that gets polarized. And, and the only other thing that I want to add politically, because I just saw it on Facebook this morning, um, is the, somebody put up the Schoolhouse Rock uh, Declaration of Independence video. Everybody knows Schoolhouse Rock. They're little animated uh, shorts that tell kids how a bill becomes a law or various other things. So this is about the signing of the Declaration of, the Indep of Independence the American Revolution, how all this came about. Um, and so it's like, they've got life and liberty, and then the running joke throughout the video is that for pursuit of happiness, you have a man chasing a woman across the screen. Oh. And she's running away like this, and he's like, woo! And that's what they're aiming at, like, four or five-year-olds. Or at, I watched that growing know, up. Yeah. Right, I watched that growing up, and it never would have occurred to me, but it's three times this shows up in this, like, three-minute video, pursuit of happiness, man chasing a woman. Um, Which also tells you who the happiness is supposed to be for. Yeah. Right? Real specifically. <laughs> exactly. Real specifically. So you have produced this wonderful anthology, Nasty Woman. Um, it obviously comes out of that moment in that t debate where Trump called Hillary Clinton a nasty woman. What do you think like makes the women in your collection nasty? <laughs> so many things. How do you think yeah. about nasty? Yeah, I think it's funny because we also um, we have a podcast as well called Feminasty. Plug plug, and we have been asking guests, including Jacqueline, what makes you a nasty woman as one of our you know the thing that we ask every week. And some people go, oh God, I don't know. That's such a hard question. And some people like Anne Friedman, who was on this week's episode, was just like, I have an opinion about literally everything. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and I kind of like that, and I think maybe that's the short answer for the yeah. women in our book, that we all have opinions um, that we are not afraid to share. Oh, I just want to add to that, Jacqueline Friedman did not skip a beat when she <laughs> right. answered that question, by the way. She knows exactly why she's nasty. <laughs> You're going to have to listen to the episode to find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, th I think that's a piece of it. The other is that you know, the collection as a whole is not cohesive in terms of having one political ideology yeah. or one political agenda, right? We have a lot of different t voices and a lot of different perspectives. And I think that there's a nastiness to that in that it's not polite conversation between women. It's rigorous debate, ideological debate between women that are just very nasty in their ability to um, articulate these arguments. Right. This isn't 23 love letters to Hillary, even though yeah. we kind of thought that was what we were doing at first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it ends up being a much it's broader... It's true. Some of them do not have a lot of love for Hillary. No. And, and, that, and we thought it was important to include those yeah. voices um, as long as we had like really strong critical thinkers and writers offering that perspective instead of just turning it into another pointless fight. Yeah. Well, along those lines, one of the things I was thinking about with this collection is, you know, there's so much tension and fighting on the left right now. There's a lot of pain, right? Like a lot of people 
saying like, hey, you know, you're hurting me, uh, to other people who we would ideally, I think, like to imagine as our allies, right? And people are saying that to us. And um, and I, I think part of that is because we know that we're not going, we're also getting hurt by our government and we know we're not going to get any care from them. Like we maybe can get care from the people who we have some common cause with. But I, I think of this anthology as sort of like my ideal for what the left could look like, which is sort of like all of these ideas can coexist and we can work together on the stuff we intersect around and we can argue with each other about the stuff that we argue each other about and it doesn't have to be this sort of like knives out struggle. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess I have questions for you about like, do you have thoughts about what needs to happen to to unify, I don't want to say reunify, has the left ever been unified? But like, <laughs> what can we learn from, from how you pulled this together to sort of pull the left together a little? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so a big part of picking the specific voices that we picked um, was to really show the diversity of opinions among feminists. Um, the From the like, you know, I'm so excited for Hillary to be president to, um, you know, this is the best strategic plan because of the Supreme Court to the like, you know, the Colliers or the Sarah Jaffe's or the Meredith Talusons who were just like, yeah, she's an establishment feminist, I don't have time for this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that part of the motivation for this particular set of essays was that pain, is that like we experience this collective trauma and every time I tried to have a conversation with someone I didn't agree with, it wasn't just like a regular political conversation, <laughs> yeah. it was like, you do not believe in my existence and I think you are a sexist. And <laughs> like there was no moving forward from that at all. And, and, and the short answer to that question is that I don't have the answer for what's going to bring the left together. My hope is that we can at least start listening to each other and seeing where some of that pain is coming from, of why, why has Bernie Sanders gotten the imagination of so many young people? And, 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 and what is there, like what, what is happening there that we're not kind of fully understanding? And why, like what will it take for people to hear older feminists in particular about the sexism that Hillary experienced and that that was like a legitimate thing and we can't just sweep it under the rug and say, oh, well, like she just wasn't the right woman because it's like, it's never the right woman. So when is the right woman coming, right? Like, look, they're doing it to Elizabeth Warren. They're going to do it to um, Kamala Kristen. Harris. They're going to do it to Kamala Harris. Like they, we have a problem with women in leadership and like we have to have our moment around that. And so my hope, and especially I want to point to Kate's essay, it was so powerful because um, she defends Susan B. Anthony, who is often written off as a racist and to say okay yes but like she also fought for us to get the right to vote and like we need to be able to hold both of these things we need to be able to hear each other on this um and and i keep talking about since it happened on book tour uh last week um sort of the flip side to my defending susan b anthony despite her being tremendously problematic on race um and she also did good things. I mean, she wasn't in. A, she was started as an abolitionist, as most of the early feminists did. Um, but that, I was so confused because I was just in the Finger Lakes this summer on right. vacation, and I went to the Seneca Falls Museum, and there was all this stuff about Susan B. Anthony and her abolitionist work, and I was like, Isn't Susan B. Anthony a racist? Right. And it's, <laughs> and it's. I think she. For one thing, I think she became increasingly racist over time. Um, but a lot of it was a reaction to the white men who were really pulling the strings in that abolitionist movement, which became the larger progressive movement, um, and kept just saying to the women in the movement, no, wait your turn, wait your turn, wait your turn. Um, but th there are also things, you can read the essay, she took money from racists, it was bad. Um, but she did, 
incredible things for women. I mean, this is why we we're taught about her, and it's important to have that corrective and say, no, she's not just this unassailable hero, but it's also important to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say we don't, you know, we can't have any heroes. Um, and so when we were, I don't know, somewhere last week, uh, Eminem did his performance mm -hmm. of, and I don't, do you remember the name of the song? I don't, off the top of my head, doesn't matter. But Eminem did a big performance last week that caught a lot of people's imagination um, because it was a, Eminem is white rapper in his 40s at this point. Um, <laughs> you feel so old. I know, right? That's <laughs> oh <my. laughs> yeah, how I did that last about my age. Eminem so. is middle-aged, just like um, me. <laughs> yeah, and so he, um, at the BET Awards or something, wasn't it? Yeah. So he did this very powerful piece um, in which he essentially said, you know, I stand against Trump, I stand with black Americans. Um, and, and it was especially important because he has a huge fan base that are, if not avowed white supremacists, very close to it. So this was a hugely important statement on race, and yet it was hard to see everyone going, oh my God, Eminem is amazing, Eminem is everything right now, because Eminem also wrote about locking his ex-wife in the trunk of his car and saying about that. 10, 15 years ago. Um, he has put a lot of misogyny out into the world, but then also did this important thing. And so I was like, that's sort of the perfect bookend to my Susan B. Anthony, that you can just hold these two things in your head at the same time, that people can be good on one, bad on the other, good on one sometimes, bad on one sometimes. Um, and bringing it all together is just we have to not fall victim to this um, this desire for purity, or we're never gonna be able to find a leader. There is no leader who is ever going to be pure, who is ever going to perfectly reflect our ideals. And can I just add to that? Yeah, I, I you think can do whatever you want. One of the things that, in reflecting and, and in editing this book, yeah. is that I feel like women especially don't get the benefit of the doubt on that. And so, um, the purity test that Hillary was put through, I mean, that alone, right, was, was, was really something else. Um, but if you supported Hillary and you were progressive, all of a sudden you endorsed every single yep. thing she ever did in her entire life throughout her entire career in this like really essentialist way that I don't remember ever endorsing another candidate and being told that that was, that means I stood for everything they might have John ever done. Perry or or John yes. Perry, right? Like, <laughs> granted, I didn't even know everything he had ever done, but like. <laughs> and then if you did say something nice about Hillary, yeah. you had to say, granted, she's a flawed candidate. Mm -hmm. Before you said anything nice yeah. about Hillary. Because you're right. like, yes. I, just, I don't want to threaten you by this intense desire I have to have a woman in the White House. Right. <laughs> well, and also, it was the only way to be taken seriously. Yeah. If you launched into any positive statement about Hillary without being, I recognize that she's flawed and we all wish we had a better candidate, then people would just tune you out. Like, that yeah. was kind of the sacrifice we had to make to have the rest of our words taken seriously. But on the, in the book, too. I mean, on yeah. the flip side, I mean, I struggle with this a lot. You know, I totally agree with you. Ideological purity makes me exhausted, right? And it's just not a way to run a movement. I'm very practical. But at the same time, sometimes I see things that I want to draw a line about, right? Like mm -hmm. the Democratic Party saying it's cool to run anti-abortion candidates, right? Like right. that feels like a purity test I'm happy to apply. So like... Is it up to each of us just to figure out where those lines are and to negotiate with each other about them? Like, are there are some things sacrosanct and some things aren't? Like, I, I, I literally don't know the answer to this, but it's. 
I think it's easy to be ideological pure, and it's also easy to say we shouldn't be purists, but like the truth lies in between. Well, yeah. I think the part that gets lost, especially in an election year, is that participating in democracy is not just about voting. It is also about pressuring your representatives and making your voice heard. And so as soon as the DNC started saying, well, maybe we'll flirt with some not quite pro-choice candidates, I was like, oh, no, you won't. Because um, that's really important to me. And that is, you know, for me, that should be a litmus test. If it's not going to be, then I'm going to be, A, I'm going to get out there in a primary and vote against um, anyone who is not staunchly pro-choice. And I did let Hillary Clinton have it when she picked Tim Kaine, um, who said he would vote as her running mate, who said he would vote pro-choice but was personally pro-life as a Catholic. And I was just like, I don't because, and the funny thing is, because I was like, look, he's, well, yeah, A, you don't one cares. B, if he's, you know, the vice president is the tiebreaker in the Senate. Yeah. And so if it comes down to it, is he going to, you know, vote his personal conscience or his party line if it's really 50-50? Um, and everybody was like, oh, my God, that's ridiculous. When does the vice president actually break a tie? Well, Pence has done it already a couple times. We live in the um, future now. Yeah. It's just not the future we thought we would be living um, yeah. in. But so, yeah, so, I mean, it didn't stop me from voting for Hillary Clinton, but I made a lot of noise. And I think Tim Kaine is sweet. He's America's dad. Like, I don't, <laughs> you know, there are really good things about him. But um, for me, that was a bright line, and I reacted accordingly. Yeah, I also, I think part of why there is so much discord on the left right now is this fight around ideological purity and like what are the ideals that make a progressive in America today and this, this I think this real tension at the root of the party around are we a party that believes that there's this kind of like shared American experience and this is kind of what my essay is about in the book, a, a kind of shared American experience where we're all just like working hard and trying to get to the top or do each of us have unique experiences because of our identity? And, and are you and talking are. about identity politics? <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. Like I'm like I'm shy about it. <laughs> like literally, the title of my essay is why we need identity politics. Um, and and I think that that tension is raising a lot of problems. Like I. The like what I'm seeing happening in the women's march right now is making me want to pull my hair out. Like this, like you know, you're right. Like you can't have, make everyone happy. You can't have every issue involved because it is completely unstrategic, and you will never b reach consensus, and you will never have an agenda, and you will never get anything done. And whoever cares most about the thing you're leaving out is always going to yell at you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And like they should yell. Yeah. And I'm starting to think, like you know, I'm starting to think that. Part of it is like if you like like if the two camps right now are we need to fix the ex existing system, the path of, you know, harm reduction versus like full on quitting. Like it's like, all right, like I knew it was a no brainer to me, even if I had all the criticisms in the world of Hillary, that Hillary would be better than Trump because of the Supreme Court. Like that was mm -hmm. so clear to me and that anybody who could sit here and be like, not here. I mean, obviously not here. <laughs> but anyone, you know, and I've met a, we've met a lot of people on tour that were like, I just couldn't vote for her, so I didn't vote for anyone. And I'm like, A, that was a vote for Trump, because like, we're yeah. in the middle of nowhere right now. And B, <laughs> like, B, I don't understand that, because like, objectively, you can say, if you're a progressive and you have certain values, Hillary would be a better, better president, whatever other criticisms you may have of her. 
Um, so, so I almost feel like if you don't think that the existing system is what's going to work, then like, let's make a new party. Like, let's have a new party. That's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think people kind of, a, a lot of, especially I think young people on the left had an idea that Trump would explode the system and that would be good for us. And it's like, no, Trump is going to explode the system and that and we're is all bad for die. us. Yes. Um, that if you want to dismantle capitalism and you know the democratic system that we're living under in a way that ultimately benefits marginalized people you don't elect a sociopathic billionaire like that's kind of um and and I feel like a lot of people were missing um the signs that he planned to govern as an authoritarian um that you know, people which is always so strange because he literally told us, right? He yeah. literally told us. If you look at history, all of the signs are there that this was going to happen, and now it is happening, and now we are watching it, and now, um, you know, it, it's so frustrating for those of us who are like, this is what I. I remember sitting in a meeting. I keep talking about this, um, like three days after I was working at a university, and the dean kind of called all of us, I was in the Women's Center, and all of us who worked in identity centers and uh, areas with explicit social justice missions um, were called in to discuss the election. And, and the main message of that meeting was, I know you all have your feelings about this, and people are sad and upset, but you have to remember all of the students here who voted for Trump and are feeling very isolated right now. And I was like, okay, but what about my students who are afraid their parents are going to get deported? What about my students who are afraid their rapes aren't going to be taken seriously? What about my students who are afraid they're going to be told that they don't legally exist because they're transgender? Well, also not to mention that if your candidate won, how are you feeling isolated? Well, mm, because they were on the big, scary liberal campus with all of the big scary liberals telling them they were wrong to vote for the fascist. And so, <laughs> um, and, and, and that was, and it's so interesting to me in light of the kind of, you know, free speech on campus debate, which is about, you know, do we let these super toxic people like Milo Yiannopoulos, like Richard Spencer, who are literally professional trolls. It's not even like they are, you know, conservative pundits who have a point to make that can be engaged by a serious person on the left. They no, in fact, when Milo, when no one showed up to protest Milo in right. Berkeley this last time, he gave like a 10-minute speech. And yeah. It was like a photo op because he has actually nothing to say. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, these are people who literally, they are there to just make people upset. And you're talking about this, but it was like, okay, so I feel like I'm being silenced as an employee because I'm not supposed to talk about the disastrous consequences of this election that were happening immediately. Oh, and I think what I was saying in terms of people not recognizing it was that meeting was the day that Steve Bannon was appointed. And I was like, I know who Steve Bannon is. I know what Breitbart is. I have been a feminist on the internet. Like, these guys, Milo, Richard Spencer, all the Breitbart guys, they practiced on feminists, mm -hmm. like, starting 10 years ago. So we knew exactly who they were. And I'm sitting in this meeting going, there is a, a, like an actual avowed white nationalist as close as you can be to the president. And people are going, 
don't get excited, you know, now let's not overreact, like we all lose elections. <laughs> um, so it was, I feel like there was so much denial until it was too late to, Yeah. Know. So I have a, I asked you about the word nasty, and now I want to ask you about the word women. So there's a, a great essay in the collection that sort of challenges the idea that we should be organizing around gender at all, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly myself think that we should we should expand our notions of gender need they need radical expansion at the very least. So how do you think of this in terms of it being a gendered project? Is it important that it's a gendered project? Does it I don't know. How do you think who's a woman? You know like Sure. Talk to me about how you think about the, the women part of the title. Um, this is great. We've never been asked this question, yes. actually. <laughs> um, so we were, you know, pretty explicit, obviously, about having only women-identified people in the book. Um, and I think the assault right now is both on our notion of femininity and kind of what feminine power and what, like, female power looks like but also on um, people who are biologically female that are, like, because they have vaginas, there's an attack on them as well. Um, and so I think it was important. It's we vote with them. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boy, am I flexible. Like, <laughs> um, but the, yeah, so really thinking past... Uh, you know, a when we think of women in this country, we think of middle class white women, right? Like that's like that's what like conjures up. Like when we talk about the women vote, we think about um, we don't think about the ninety four percent of black women that actually voted for Hillary Clinton, right? Or the um, you know number of trans women who are women of color who are the highest rate um, in the population to be murdered per um, percentage wise, and and so really pushing past our notion of. And, and understanding that this is complex, these are complex times, because both, and I always use this example, both Hillary Clinton couldn't make it to the White House and Beyonce put out an album like Lemonade, like that <laughs> happened in the same year, right? So like our identities and our experiences are so expansive right now and they're so creative and, and it feels like we have so much power. Like we do, you know, we, like if you told me, would, would you want to be a woman 40 years ago? I'd be like, hell no, like <laughs> I want to be a woman right now. And so we're kind of grappling with both of those experiences at the same time. And I think that we do need to expand our notion of gender and we also need to talk about masculinity and we need to talk about, I mean, in light of the Harvey Weinstein, um, the kind of Me Too campaign that came out after, there was a real strong call to action for men to stand up both as survivors, and many men did bravely talk about their experiences with sexual assault, but also in the ways that they are implicated in rape culture, in the ways that they turn their head when their friends do something, or, mm -hmm. or they you know, hear, overhear someone say something macho and they don't do anything about it. And, and I think that as, you know, I still think it's important for us to have these spaces where we cultivate and allow women to freely talk about political experience and identity. But I do think my sense of gender is much more than having a feminist movement where we're all just working on reproductive rights. It's about bringing that lens to every piece of work that we're doing. So when we're talking about the Muslim ban, I think Muslim women are disproportionately impacted because you can identify them if, if they're wearing a head covering, mm -hmm. right? Or you know the immigration debate, how women, the way that they've been impacted in deportation and, and their families being broken apart and all of that stuff. So. And there's a woman, I think, being held right now who's being denied an abortion yep. for no reason whatsoever except the whim of the Trump administration. Right. Yeah. Um, I think something that I'm still kind of 
chewing on and working out right now is how we're at a point where I am fully on board with exploding the concept of binary gender and saying that people identify all over a spectrum, but also recognizing that we live in a world that still primary, primarily arranges ourselves in categories of men and women based on biological sex, and one of those categories is punished repeatedly. Um, and so, you know, a lot, I talk to younger people again, like when I was working at college, who sort of feel post-gender, and I'm like, but there are some of us, and some of us identify as trans men and are still having our uteruses mandated, and some of us identify as cis women and are sitting there like, basically, I feel like in some ways we have kind of, it, we're forcing people to choose and that shouldn't be happening. Um, and that we should be able to talk about how the binary oppresses us all without kind of throwing out like the act of sexism mm -hmm. that is happening even towards someone like Hillary Clinton who has a ton of privilege. Um, and this is really, you know, and this is the kind of thing that, and I'm, you hear me stumbling and hesitating because these are really charged things and because it is very easy to say hurtful things when you're talking about this. And that is not something that I want to do. But um, yeah, it's hard. Like it was important for us, like we said, to have women identify people. It was important to me that it was a women's march. Um, and I, I argued with Meredith a little bit, who's a trans woman who wrote about you know, seeing all the pussy hats and feeling very excluded um, as a woman and from this feminist moment. And I was like, but those were also really important to me because, first of all, because I was in DC and walking out on the street, we got in the night before, um, and so people were going to inaugural balls, and so we see all these people dressed up in their finery to celebrate him, and I was just like, oh. Um, and then the next morning I wake up and it's this sea of pink hats, and it was like, oh my God, but there are more of us than there were of them. And that was really, it was so meaningful to me as an identifier, and then also because literally we, I mean, the hats existed because he said he likes to grab women by the pussy. Yeah. And that is a threat to anyone who is perceived as female. Um, and so I don't know how you separate pussies out of it completely. Yeah. Um, but I also then don't want to be hurtful and exclusive. And so I think yeah. we're, we're at a point where everybody's still figuring out gender. Um, and we've all got a long way to go. Yeah, and I think part of why young women didn't fully connect with Hillary is because they're they're ready for like Laverne Cox to be president, right? right. Like, they're like gender what? Like yeah. you know, they're like I identify as them, and they you know like they are. You know, when I hear like when I speak in at colleges and universities, like the language that, that the expansiveness with which they talk about gender is really inspiring. I mean, I mean, I'm still of the generation that was like. What do you mean you're trans? You're betraying the cause, you know, and like, and, and like, just to see the conversation has evolved so much. I mean, it's so exciting and amazing, but like, I think people are not totally clear yet how to move forward with both needing a movement that re re like relieves, you know, cisgender women of sexualized oppression while also changing and shifting and making space for a new yeah. form of gender. Mm -hmm. um, I, I agree with Meredith in that. 
in all social justice organizing, I think in all of the ways that we think about this, we do need to centralize and always be thinking about our most marginalized. And and then I think when you look at, at women, it, it is trans women of color, right? Like they are the most likely to get murdered. They're the most likely to live in poverty. They're the most, you know, and, but I also think that when we do that, it opens up our parameters and our thinking of policies that are more comprehensive for women writ large, yeah. right? And, and so I think like a lot of these conversations happen amongst ourselves, but when you look, uh, approach it from a policy angle, like we get caught up in these definitions that like, like even if you think about race politics, right? Like Barack Obama could be president and Trayvon Martin happened. That all happened in the same yeah. time, right? And, and we need something that can address both of those things, or we need to be thinking openly enough about how, and that's not us doing that to ourselves as progressives. Right. Those are definitions that are put on us. Those are policies that are put on us. That's racism and sexism that exists. Yeah. You know. All right. I do want to open it up for questions, but I have one more question for you guys before we do that, which is your subtitle is about feminism and resistance in Trump's America. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering how you're each doing one year ish into Trump's America. How, how are you doing? <laughs> How's your Trump's America? It was really good to work on the book, and it's been really rewarding to travel with the book um, because we get to connect with people like you who are willing to come out and talk about this stuff or listen to us yammer about it. Um, and we, and working on the book gave us a project and something to kind of look forward to and a reason to get up in the morning. <laughs> um, and so, I don't know. On the one hand, like. On the one hand, I'm doing great. You know, the book's out, and I'm on a stage, and this is wonderful. On the other hand, especially this week, and I think a lot of us are feeling it, um, I have written a lot, including a book about rape culture in the past. I am a survivor, and listening to just all of these stories pour forth over the last week with the Me Too hashtag and all of that, reading the stories of women in Hollywood, and, and then seeing the responses where... There's a lot of compassion and a lot of solidarity. And then there's also a lot of, well, why didn't you speak up sooner? Mm -hmm. And, you know, oh, God, at, you know, at this point, if I were a starlet who didn't have a Harvey Weinstein assault story, I would make one up. Stuff like that. And it's just, that just reinforces why it's so hard for people to come forward, why we are still so unsupportive of people who are harassed and abused and assaulted. Um, so this week has been trying for me. I'm having a hard time. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I, I think the night of the election was such a breaking point for me. And, and, um, and we've all known each other a long time. <laughs> and, you know, like I've been an activist for a long time. I've been a writer for a long time. And I appreciated that people felt so emboldened after the election. I was just like, I told you this would happen. No one listened to me for the last 20 years. Like, you know, I was just, I was so incensed and I really went inward. I, I really felt like I needed to recharge because I was like, oh, the fight ahead is so much more than we thought. Like we really got ahead of ourselves um, in terms of the progress and, 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 and what I thought was happening in my own little world. Of oh, yeah, because we had an agenda yeah. for, like, when Hillary got elected, we yeah. actually some work yeah. Yeah, we were shit, like, right? criminal justice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that, that, that was all, you know, and even, and, and I talk about this in my essay, the night of the election, I had, um, which is how the book came to be, I had written a 2,000-word essay on the historic 
election of the first woman president. And <laughs> I, yeah, I gave it to my editor and I went off to the Javits Center um, and everyone on my team was like, Samita, you have to go to Javits, you have to go see history be made. And boy, did I ever see history be made that night. <laughs> um, and as I call it, the feminist zombie apocalypse around yeah. 1030, <laughs> where people literally sat down on the ground and had their arms around each other and were leaving and mumbling and crying. And I realized in the middle of that that I had to go back to the office and ask all of my staff who are young, millennial, people of color, queer, crying and being like, you have to now write like right projected winner, Donald Trump. And that just the emotion that came through all of that, that like huge shift of like working in a newsroom that none of us knew, like none of us knew it could happen that the data was wrong, <laughs> that people were lying, like people were just like, of course I wouldn't vote for a racist, voted for a racist, you know? <laughs> like, it was just like, all of it was more than like my tiny brain could comprehend. Like I was like, I, I don't know what to do now. And I, so in kind of processing with that, obviously like this book was this big opportunity. Um, and it's been so exciting to see so many people coming out but everybody has the same questions about like, where do we go from here? How do we stay hopeful? What do we do next? And that is both so heartening and it's so heartbreaking. Yeah. I want to thank you all for coming out. We're going to have uh, these two wonderful women signing books in a minute. And I believe there's going to be wine and cheese. So uh, yes. let's, uh, let's keep the party rolling more informally. Thank, thank you. you.